you would turn with me this morning once again to the book of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Mark 6, 30 through 44. Of all the stories in the New Testament, this perhaps is one of the most familiar. And we like to hear this kind of story over and over. Sometimes we even like to hear it with a new twist or a new understanding. But let me remind you, just so this passage is familiar, and all four gospel writers, even John, give this event in Scripture, yet we understand this Scripture is a timeless story because it's true, and it reveals to us by the Holy Spirit God's Word, and in it is the Holy Spirit's training ground to teach us and to train us in the Word of God. So as we come to this passage with those things in mind, a familiar yet very important event in the life of Christ and his people. Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. As we consider this reading of God's word, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, this is your word. Give us ears to hear it and hearts to understand it. We pray, Lord, that it would be impressed upon us that we might with wonder and joy praise you for what you have done and what you continue to do among your people in the church. Father, I pray that the words spoken here, the thoughts and attitudes of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And Lord, would be consistent with your word, or else fall away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm reminded nearly every day how tough a job that teachers have in today's society. Now, inside information is my wife, of course, is a teacher. So she comes home, and we talk about our day, either at church or at school, and I understand that we live in a world in which it's difficult because of the things going on all around us. We had a conversation just the other day going out and meeting someone that she had known from before. 
who was a kindergarten and first grade teacher. She described how she had already been hit in the nose by a student, as well as threatened on the playground with a knife. Kindergarten and first grade. Difficult. It's also every once in a while that Jennifer tells me about a student who's doing something that's not appropriate or something like that, and she'll take that student aside. Of course, often it makes no difference, but sometimes that student will break, and they will apologize. They will confess their sins. And at other times, it might be an emotional story of what's going on in their home, and a teacher goes through these emotional experiences with their students. It's difficult and emotional. But we also know, and perhaps you remember in your lives, how a teacher, a coach, or someone in your life made a powerful impact and lasting impact on you because of the experiences that you had in the classroom or on a sporting field or some other event. You see, teaching can be difficult, emotional, and powerful. But what about the church? You know, our job is to make disciples. And one of the most important things we do is teach and preach and train and counsel and all those things. Is the ministry here at Faith Presbyterian Church difficult, emotional, and powerful? Well, if it's the ministry of the kingdom, it very well should be. Even Christ-centered, Bible-focused ministry is, as this passage reminds us, Ministry that is difficult, emotional, and powerful. Ministry is difficult. The context of this passage in verse 30 is the apostles returning. If you remember earlier in the chapter, Jesus had sent out the apostles to go out and teach and proclaim the gospel and even perform miracles and exorcisms and all those things. In fact, he knew it was going to be difficult. He warned them that there would be those who would not accept them and in those cases, though they had stayed at the same residence while they ministered in a particular town, there might be instances where they would have to take off their sandals and basically shake the dust off of them in testimony against a town that refuses to accept the teaching of the kingdom of God. This is the context. The apostles have now come back and they're giving their mission report. But notice what happens. As the apostles returned to Jesus, tell him all that they had done and taught, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate, desolate place and rest a while. He understood that after even a brief time of ministry, these apostles could use a retreat. And here's the context of this mission. Here's their mission report. It is twofold, as Mark describes it. First of all, they're explaining to Jesus what they did, what they had done. And secondly, they're explaining to him what they had taught. It's a mission report. What happened as you went out onto the mission field? What did you do? What did you teach? And so they give this report, and you think that they're giving it with joy or wonder or perhaps with perplexity uh, because of maybe some things that didn't happen that they would expect. You know what it's like. You go and you go out on a mission of some sort, you have no idea how it's going to go. You come back and you're giving the report of what's happened. But Jesus recognized that even these apostles, trained by Jesus himself, going out two by two, yet when they did this, it was very difficult to the point that they would need a retreat. 
But here are the circumstances. Here's what happens so often. He says, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. You see, the circumstances of ministry is like this sometimes, isn't it? Constant interruption. They couldn't even eat. You know, it's funny, as a pastor, sometimes I recognize that when we have a big meal like we're going to have today, everybody's invited, by the way, when we have a big meal together and so forth, sometimes it's important for me to address different people in the room as the pastor and see how people are doing everything, and sometimes I eat very little at these meals. It's because the ministry is more important than the food to me. But it's not just that the apostles could use a, treat, a retreat. Jesus also, from time to time, could use a respite. In fact, the context that Matthew tells us in this event, remember, it's explained this particular event in all four of the Gospels. In Matthew 14, when we're told about the circumstances surrounding us, it says Jesus needed a place of rest or solitary place because he had just heard of John the Baptist's death. Remember, we looked at that last week in Mark 6 about the circumstances surrounding John the Baptist and Herod Antipas. And this is the constant refrain through the Gospels. If you notice this, Jesus is constantly bombarded either by people wanting things from him, wanting teaching, wanting healing, wanting all kinds of things, exorcism of demons, or those who are opposing him come and challenging him and asking him questions and even questioning him on the law of God. And what does Jesus do so often? He says, I need to find a place to pray. Ministry is difficult. Now, many saw them going and recognized who the apostles were. You know, it's interesting. It doesn't say it just they recognized Jesus. By this point, Jesus has sent these apostles out in this region. They've now come back. So even the apostles are recognized as being associated with Jesus and perhaps with miracles of healing and all kinds of different things. So this great crowd comes from all these towns around them, and somehow they figure out where they're going, and they get there in front of the apostles and Jesus. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. You see, the crowds, even, at times could use a break. Why were they going out there? Their everyday lives were filled with difficulty. Some of them were just living day to day, paycheck to paycheck. Others were wondering when perhaps the oppressive Roman government who was over them might be thrown off and the Israelites would once again have their own reign. They're thinking of all these things and they're looking for answers in Jesus and his apostles. Ministry is difficult. Some people have asked me over the last couple of months what my trip to Florida was like. In the last two years, I've taken a vacation with my family, with Jennifer and Xander, to Florida. And these last two years, what did I do in Florida? I slept. In fact, last year, 
That's about all I did. Jennifer can tell you, I would take a nap, and then I'm taking another nap, and then I'm sleeping, and I'm doing all these things. And they asked, well, did you do anything exciting down there? Well, we walked at the beach a little bit. We sat down at the beach. We watched movies in the room. But basically, we did little or nothing, did no particular sightseeing, did not do anything exciting of one thing or another, because ministry is difficult, and we need sometimes times of rest. Why is this? Because we live in a sinful world and the consequences of sin are so terrible. And God has placed us in such a place to deal with these things, extending to people God's grace in times of need. This is why the picture in the book of Hebrews about entering the Sabbath rest is so wonderful. Because we understand that that all the things of the kingdom in this time and place with the opposing factions of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are clashing against each other. And because of all that is taking place, it is so difficult. We need armor from God spiritually even to stand in such times, let alone deal with the sinfulness of our own hearts and the ideas of the sin congregated amongst us. Imagine here, there are probably about 100 people in this room, maybe, Imagine a hundred people in this room, all the sins that they have committed in the last week. And we're the people coming to worship God. So think of how terribly awful it is to deal with the kingdom when these clashes are taking place in all of this every day of the week. And it's not just difficult for the pastor. It's difficult for the elders and the deacons and the women and the discipleship committee and the mission committee and and all of those who are doing work in the church. It's hard. And sometimes it's hard because it's so emotional. I have to say, when I signed up to the call of God to be a pastor, I was not naturally an emotional person. In my family, we don't express those emotions too much. We're not huggers necessarily. We're not touchers. We're not all touchy-feely and all those things. I can't remember a time when I was very young when I saw much emotion in my father. And yet, the longer I become a pastor, the more emotions hit me. And it's because these are from the Lord, too. Notice what happens when this crowd comes. Here he's getting the mission report from his apostles and Jesus is looking for a a, a place to rest and to pray and to hear what has happened with the disciples and here's this big crowd coming to interrupt him. He saw the great crowd and he had compassion on them. This is the heart of Jesus. He's welcoming sometimes interruptions, isn't he? He says they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, first of all, we know what he means when he says that they're like sheep. They're kind of dumb animals that don't know what to do and they need guidance. They need a shepherd. They need someone to lead them and direct them. And, of course, this phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is rife with with scriptural references. We could turn back to Numbers 27 when Moses is about to die. And he turns to God and he says, these 
People here are like sheep without a shepherd. They need somebody else to take my place. And God raised up Joshua. Of course, Joshua is the Old Testament name for Jesus, Savior. And so Joshua was raised up to be the shepherd for the sheep. In 1 Kings 22, Ahab was king. And Micaiah the prophet prophesied when Micah Ezekiel especially talks about the shepherds who themselves are feeding themselves rather than the sheep. They're sinning against the people. And so these people are sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus says, here are the people of Israel in his day. They may not understand it or know it, but they're like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. In fact, we're told in verse 34 what he did. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So what did he do? He began to teach them many things. This is what Mark tells us. He taught them. In fact, it's interesting here. He taught them for hours. You know, this is a pastor's dream. No time limit. Ha, ha, ha. Wouldn't that be great? For hours he's teaching them. There's no clock there. They're, they're there to see him and the apostles. And in order to have compassion on them, what is the most important thing that they need? They need God's word through Jesus. The impactful, life-changing word of God that the Holy Spirit can change hearts over. And so his compassion for them, these sheep without a shepherd, is that they would be taught many things. Matthew also tells us he healed as well. He had compassion on them. Again, here were these crowds often crowding in, wanting things from him. Some of them not necessarily wanting Jesus, but wanting the benefits they get about being around, they get from being around Jesus. And so here it is, he's teaching them, he's healing them. Why? Because he has compassion on them. But what about the emotion of the apostles? He comes up to them. As it grew late, his disciples said, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now we look at that and we think, well, how, how harsh they were. They let them. But no, this isn't harshness. This is concern. They came to this place. They've been taught for hours. They have no, nothing there for them to eat. There's no store there. There, there. there aren't homes there. It's a desolate place. It's kind of a wilderness area. And their concern is for the people. It's in the right place. What is their concern? First of all, it's for provisions. They need sustenance. They need food. Luke tells us in his account, they're also concerned that they get lodging that they find a place that they can stay for the night. In other words, some of these people come from places around the area, these villages that they can't just go back to tonight. They need a place to stay. So the, the disciples are not without compassion or emotion. They're concerned about the physical well-being of the, church, of, the, of the congregation that's gathered there. But it's interesting Jesus tells them, of course, this thing, you. And, of course, the emphatic emphasis here is the you. You do it. John tells us that Philip was the first one who said, well, we're concerned about the financial burden. You know, sometimes in these meetings that we have in church leadership meetings, sometimes 
the financial things come up more than a pastor likes them to come up. Sometimes they come up in ways that we don't necessarily like. In this particular situation, they're just saying, hey, Jesus, we need a reality check here. You want us to feed them, but we don't have the resources to do so. It would take 200 denarii to feed them. To understand what this was, this is between 9 and 12 months' wages of the common worker. And they're like, I don't think we have that. In fact, the tone here from the Greek seems to be a little bit disrespectful in the way that they're responding to Jesus. Here they are, they've just come back from this mission trip. They're giving their report about all the things that have happened. There's probably some joy involved in that. But when it comes to the fact that they're tired, they're wanting to get through uh, this teaching experience and all these things, <laughs> Jesus, we, we can't do that. But here's the thing. This emotion of compassion and concern, rightly placed about the concern, I think, because they were concerned about the well-being of these sheep. Jesus also is emotional in the fact that he will challenge us. You feed them. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. We're told by John that Andrew went. Andrew found a boy with five loaves and two fish. Of course, these loaves are not the loaves of bread we have today. They're smaller. This was his lunch, basically. The fish more like sardines than they are big bass or something like that. And so here they are, one small meal to feed 5,000 men. And if there were women and children there as well, perhaps 15 to 20,000 people. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish, and he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. Jesus tested them. In fact, John, especially in his account, says that he tested him, that is Philip, who was interacting with him. He was, he was concerned emotionally and by faith about the, the faith that Philip had at that moment facing the circumstances. And the disciples struggled to believe. Remember, Philip says, 200 denarii are not enough. Andrew says, what are five loaves and two fish, really, for so many? Even later, in Mark chapter 8, we're going to get there in a, in a couple weeks down the road here. In Mark chapter 8, 4,000 people come, 1,000 less. And the disciples still don't think that Jesus can feed them. Ministry is emotional. As I mentioned, I'm not by nature or wasn't by nature an emotional person, but ministry changes the person. When you visit people who are suffering physically, it can take a toll. When you visit people who have suffered the loss of a loved one, it can be very difficult. When you deal with those who are bearing the scars of their sin or the sin of those against them. It's difficult. But when you see folks come to repentance and faith, the joy is so great. Repentance, faith, and obedience to Christ, yes, it's more than an emotional response. Emotions can fool us. 
We can think that we've come to faith because we have a great emotional response by it, but it's not just that emotional response. It is also the accompanying desire for obedience and the difficult nature of changing our life to do so that shows us that we truly trust the Lord Jesus for our lives. But it certainly includes emotion. Ministry is emotional, and that's why I think so many, so many struggle and fall. It's because the weight of emotions, both the difficulty of tough emotions and the, the expanding joy of emotions that can give us either great highs or great lows take a toll on those involved in ministry. But in the end, we recognize that though ministry is difficult, though ministry is emotional, ministry is very powerful. Here's where we get to the miracle. Here's what we often think of in this particular context. Ministry is powerful. They have five loaves and two fish. He commands them to sit down in groups on the green grass. It's interesting. Mark is the only one who tells us the grass is green. It's a little detail. When I teach my class on New Testament history overseas and I remind them that God uses each of these witnesses uh, as different uh, contexts, different abilities, different things, but this is a proof that there was an eyewitness account here, likely Peter giving these words to Mark. It's green grass that they're sitting on. They sit down in groups by hundreds and fifties with military precision, it seems. Feasting groups in companies, in fact, the word that's used here for these companies is almost like garden plots. Like a, a garden would be planned out. Here are the companies sitting in hundreds and fifties. There is order and there is distribution. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Interesting, I told Jennifer when I read certain commentaries on this particular event, I don't think I'll ever look at this event the same way again, although I'm not totally convinced by this particular uh, perspective on the feeding of the 5,000. There's at least one commentator who will say that these were people coming from all over the villages on a mission to appoint Jesus as the commander of a rebellion against the Roman Empire very military-like in their precision here. How did they know and do the proper reconnaissance to know exactly where they would land on the side of the sea? How is it that they were ready, as John tells us in his gospel, he says they were ready to anoint him king, and when he understood that, he got away. The gospel is powerful. Ministry is powerful. They recognize the power of Jesus by coming to him. He's been healing people in the dozens, if not hundreds. He's been exercising demons from people. He's been teaching with authority like they've never seen before, so that even the scribes trained in the word of God could not answer him. And they see that power and they think, this is the guy we want to lead the rebellion. And isn't this the temptation we have? To turn to a movement with a strong leader in politics or business or technology or something. 
and to find our answers and some type of solution or salvation there. That's what the world is looking for, isn't it? Just the right politician to bring us to the promised land. Just the right technological advance to make us all happy and comfortable. Just the right business leader to make our retirement counts full so we can enjoy the end of our lives. But that's not the salvation of the scriptures. To be happy and comfortable for a few moments. The military precision instead is accompanied by the miraculous provision that Jesus offers here. On the one hand, we know it's miraculous because that amount of food cannot possibly feed those people that are gathered there, at least not according to the natural order of the world. And yet this miraculous provision, on the one hand, is reminiscent of manna in the desert, isn't it? Here they are in a desolate wilderness area. There's no opportunity for them to be provided the resources they need for that meal that night. But here it is, God in his power through his son Jesus Christ multiplies those loaves and fish somehow so that all the people are fed. And the disciples couldn't believe that when they had the word of God, that God did this for 40 years for more people in the desert. That God did this for even a small group of 100 prophets in the ministry of Elisha that was read earlier by Steve in 2 Kings. It's also a recollection of this. Did you notice these words? He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. What does that sound like? It's the recollection of a Passover provision, particularly the Passover that Jesus would celebrate with his apostles not too much later than these words were, re were recording. Especially with the context provided in John and the words that are used in John, John reminded us that not only the circumstances were what Matthew and Mark pre prescribe as Jesus hearing about the death of John the Baptist and the report of the, of the uh, apostles coming back, but he also reminded us it was right around the time of Passover. This miraculous provision. So much so that on the bottom of your outline in your bulletin, you'll notice this particular verse. Jesus will say just about a chapter later, a few Words later from this event, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, the power of the kingdom in the Holy Spirit is the power of God. What happened? Here's this event. Verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. It wasn't just that they had a few crumbs so that they could satisfy their hunger. No, they ate and were satisfied, and there was an abundance left over. Imagine, here were five small loaves, probably could not fill a basket. Two small fish certainly could not fill a basket. And what happens, they take up 12 baskets full of broken pieces in the fish. Of course, you wonder, how, how, what did they have in the baskets to begin with? I've always kind of wondered that. Where did they get the baskets? That's not the point, though, is it? Those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Of course, if you take the military idea, you think that maybe there were only men there. I don't necessarily 
feel convinced by that argument, there probably were 10 to 15,000 people there. So, the question, why, why is this here? Is it just for us to believe that God can do an amazing and powerful thing? You know, we haven't set up our Thanksgiving dinner today with people bringing five loaves and two fish. So I, I don't think it's to tell us that we should always trust God to provide and not bring many resources to a dinner. I don't think that's it. I, I don't think it's just to be reminded that ministry is difficult or hard. But it does remind us that we are like sheep who need to be fed. We have needs that only God can see. We have needs that we might share with others and he might lead different individuals within the congregation of pastor or others to help with those needs. But I want to turn this question around to you. Does your service to God tax you? Not when you were young, those of us who have gray hair. Does it tax you now? Does it wear you out? Scripture tells us that even prayer, properly done, can be like wrestling and can be very emotional, very challenging. I challenge you one day to sit somewhere for one hour and pray. Can you really do that? It is a challenge. Is your service and ministry taxing to you that sometimes you recognize it's difficult and it will wear you out? The second thing, we're described here as Presbyterians sometimes as the frozen chosen, aren't we? We're not the clappers necessarily in church. It seems odd sometimes still to get the amens that some people crave in a worship service. We're not the ones that necessarily are, are very emotional in our responses. And yet, do you get emotional in your service to God as you serve him in ministry? It's emotional, compassion, concern, challenging our faith. The third thing, are you amazed? Are you amazed at what God is doing? And not here just saying, are you amazed in what took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus gave food to 5,000 men? Or are you amazed at what took place when the church grew in the early days in the book of Acts? I want to ask you, are you amazed at what God is doing with you? Are you amazed at God, what God is doing through you to others? Are you amazed about what God is doing through us and in this context of our church here in Myrtle Beach? Are we amazed? These questions, I think, are so important. Because this training ground, this particular miracle is not just to say, look how wonderful Jesus was and how miraculously powerful he is. No, it's describing to us what the word of God in the body of the living word, Jesus Christ, who died and would by this point die for them, now has died for us on the cross, has been raised from the dead, and the Holy Spirit working through that word, taught and discipled to the people, can do. It is challenging, it is difficult, it is emotional, but it is powerful. And I have to say, I still, I still sometimes get surprised and amazed when I see God changing somebody's life. And I think to myself, how can I be caught by surprise again? 
I know the power of God's word because I see it, that it's true. Matthew says it, Mark says it, Luke says it, John says it, the disciples that have come forth since then, and all those who wrote and copied the scriptures from generation to generation were not just recording a historical event that has so much meaning and power, but they were recording a historical event by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the word of God that changes and convicts souls to get them to repent from their sins, trust on Jesus Christ, and obey them, walking with God by his grace. What a powerful God. We're about to have Thanksgiving dinner after Sunday school. If you're staying for Sunday school, great. Stay for Sunday school, stay for dinner afterwards. If for some reason you can't sit through Sunday school, come back and eat with us because what we're going to do is we're going to give thanks to the God of the provision, our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, the one who can give us food so that we shall not be hungry, the one who can give us drink so that we shall not thirst, the one who will give us entrance into the kingdom of God by the power of his spirit causing us to be born again that we might trust in him and walk with him. What a God. Let's pray. Lord, we are your sheep. Feed us. Lord, you are our savior. Save us. Lord, you are the great convictor by the Holy Spirit, the convictor of sin, the one who teaches us all things, reminds us of all things, the one who testifies about Jesus to us, the one who protects and preserves us, the one who helps to sanctify us. Lord, do these things for us. Challenge us this day that we might with great joy be willing to be worn out, be willing to have highs and lows emotionally, be willing, Father, to see your power at work through the church, your instrument, imperfect as it is, to change the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.